In the headlines today, New Yorkers head to the, po- the polls as President Donald Trump stands for re-election. America braces for an election night like no other, as rumors swirl that President Trump will seek to prematurely declare victory. And the rest of the world is also watching today's election with a mix of dread and anticipation. In New York, I'm John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of The Independent, and this is the inaugural edition of The Independent News Hour for November 3rd, 2020. We have some fantastic guests lined up for a little later in the show to talk about today's presidential election and how pro-democracy forces should respond if the election results are disputed in the days and weeks ahead. But first, some headlines. New Yorkers streamed to the polls today starting at 6 a.m. to vote in one of the most contentious and important presidential elections in recent history that features incumbent President Donald Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden. The polls will will remain open until 9 p.m. tonight. The Independent's Amba Gagarian spoke with voters at Midwood High School in in Brooklyn's Flatbush neighborhood, and here's what they had to say. It went very well and very fast and very efficient. Didn't have to wait, no line, and the people were very helpful to help you if you didn't know how to use it. I made it my way to come down here and vote. I'm 82 years old, but I made it. I think Trump is going to lose because he's very arrogant. He doesn't speak good. He's very arrogant. God bless. How I feel about voting today, I feel like uh, I made uh, or I did my part for my country, you know. Like uh, my vote, every, vote, every vote counts, so I feel like uh, I did what I had to do. So I feel hopeful. You know, I see a lot of younger people helping and I see a lot of older people voting, but it's a mixed crowd. It's a great country and we have the opportunity to vote and we're taking advantage of it. I am surprisingly emotional about it. Um, I think after hunting up so much anger over the last couple of years, I'm surprisingly just emotional about it. Do you feel hopeful about the election today? We have a lot of thinking of a con- as a country. Um, I, I think hopeful is just too light a word. We just have a lot of work to do as a country. As voters go to the polls today, Biden leads in the real clear politics average of national polls by 7.2 points. But his lead in the key battleground states that will decide the winner of the Electoral College has dipped to 2.3 points. Speaking yesterday in the crucial state of Pennsylvania that Trump narrowly won four years ago, Biden made a final appeal for support. I chose Western Pennsylvania for my first stop as a candidate and now for my last stop before Election Day because you represent the backbone of this country. Hardworking families are asking nothing but a fair shot an even chance, ordinary people doing extraordinary things, the qualities that built this country, that created and sustained the middle class. And by the way, as I said twice other today, unions built the middle class. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals has rejected an appeal by Republicans to throw out 127,000 votes cast by Harris County residents in drive-in voting centers. The ruling comes on the heels of of yesterday's ruling by a federal district judge in Texas that also rejected the lawsuit 
that was brought by three GOP lawmakers and a conservative activist. Harris County encompasses Houston and is a bastion of Democratic support in Texas, where Biden and Trump are running neck and neck in the race for the state's 38 electoral votes. In other voter suppression news, President Trump continued to insist that all votes should be counted by midnight tonight, which would favor Republicans in several swing states where late-arriving mail-in ballots won't be counted until after Election Day. that we'll be over 290 electoral votes on election night. So no matter what they try to do, what kind of hijinks or lawsuits or whatever kind of nonsense they try to pull off, we're still going to have enough electoral votes to get President Trump reelected. I'm sorry, that was not uh, President Trump. Uh, That was uh, Trump's advisor, Jason Miller, uh, speaking on Sunday with with, uh, this week with George Stephanopoulos, where he uh, told it... uh, Stephanopoulos that the Trump campaign expects to be leading tonight in enough states for Trump to claim a second term and that the Trump campaign will fight Democratic attempts to reverse the results. Now, what Miller doesn't mention is that Trump's election night lead in several key states will be shaped by the fact that states like Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin won't tabulate their mail-in ballots until after Election Day. Later in the show, we'll talk with the co-editor of Waging Nonviolence about how pro-democracy forces can thwart Trump if he tries to hijack the election. People around the world will be watching tonight's election returns with bated breath as the future of international cooperation on climate change and other important issues lies in the balance. The French newspaper Le Figaro writes that outside of the World Cup soccer finals, there is hardly any planetary suspense comparable to the U.S. presidential election. Yasmin Ozir a Turkish graduate student at the City University of New York told The Independent that Americans should look outside their borders for how to respond amid all the uncertainty about what Trump will do. There are clear signs pointing to what might turn into a very contentious election um, where the result might be contested. But um, I think it's really important that American voters look beyond American exceptionalism and um, sort of give up this naive sense that um, elections cannot be stolen here and coups cannot happen in this country unlike in the rest of the world and be be prepared for uncertain times to come um, and manage collective emotions to be resilient. We will talk more with Ozir during the second half of this show. When we come back from this short break, we will get a live report from an election defender in Pennsylvania. And then we'll hear from the author of a recent article on right-wing propaganda techniques and how Trump is poised to take advantage of our loss of a shared sense of truth.
That was Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free by the great Nina Simone. You're listening to the inaugural Independent News Hour. I'm your host, John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. You can find our November print edition in our red and white news boxes on a street corner near you. And you can follow us on the web at independent.org. That's I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T dot O-R-G. We've hosted the Monday edition of the WBAI Evening News for the past couple of years, and now we've moved to this new time slot, and it's great to be here with you. Moving on to our first segment, President Trump has riled up his supporters throughout the campaign with baseless charges that balloting would be rigged in big cities where large numbers of people of color happen to live. Amid concerns that Trump supporters would try to intimidate voters, thousands of election defenders have deployed to key swing states across the country. Joining us now is Mike Tork, a member of Veterans for Peace who made a 10-hour drive from his home in Cape Cod, Massachusetts to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to join a team of election defenders there. Mike, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, John, for having me. Pleasant, you bet. Uh, you know, happy to be here. Always nice to hear Nina Simone. You bet. Now, can you, uh, first of all, uh, paint a scene for us as far as uh, what you've uh, seen so far today and what you and your team members have been doing? Uh, Well, interestingly enough, uh, right as you called, I got a message that there was some voter intimidation going on over in Pin Hills, and I'm headed there now. It's about 10 minutes away uh, with some Trump supporters that are uh, causing some uh, issues, so... But the rest of the day, uh, and I've been here since 7 this this morning in East Pittsburgh, has been very peaceful, uh, very quiet. It's predominantly black, and the community's out. They're supporting voting, and there's a lot of voter protection and uh, election defenders and, you know, joy at the polls of musical groups. So it's this community's very uh, excited. They're voting, and, and it's gone very well so far. And did you hear any uh, any more details about what was happening with this incident uh, that just uh, no, I occurred just got, recently? I just got a, no, sir. I, uh, other than uh, Trump supporters uh, in pickups and intimidating voters, and, and like I said, I'm, I'm headed in that direction now. Uh, uh, I'll probably be the first one over there. So, wow, we'll see. Right now. Um, while we still have you, uh, can you tell us why you decided to uh, participate in this and, and, and drive all the way from Massachusetts to Pennsylvania? Well, I think you kind of pointed it out. There's, uh, you know, the the dog whistle himself, uh, you know, has been uh, trying to rally his, you know, folks to get out there and intimidate, and, you know, different groups. We know them. I don't even want to mention by name, but... Uh, I felt it was important that uh, we counter that. So, and uh, you know, I'm I'm all for uh, every voter being able to vote without being intimidated. So, that's what why I'm here. 
Right. And uh, and how late does the voting run in Pennsylvania today? Is it till seven or eight p.m.? It's seven. I'm I'm pretty sure, but maybe eight. Actually, I should know that. I guess I'll find out. But uh, I'm I'm here as long as the polls are open, and perhaps tomorrow, depending on how the counting goes. But. Right. Well, yeah. we'll have to leave it there. But, Mike, thank you so much for joining us on the Independent News Hour and keep up the good work all the way through the finish line. All right. I will. Thank you very much. appreciate being on the call. You bet. All right. All right. We'll be back with more after this short break. That was Malcolm X by Hal Singer. You're listening to the inaugural edition of the Independent News Hour. I'm your host, John Tarleton, editor-in-chief of the Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. Uh, before we move on, an additional note about that last music break that was sent to us, that uh, that clip was sent to us last night from Beirut by Jackson Allers, who was active at WBAI and our Pacifica sister station, KPFT, in Houston for many years before he moved to the Middle East. Jackson uh Host uh, currently hosts a weekly show on Radio Al-Hara, an online station that broadcasts from Bethlehem in occupied Palestine. Thank you, Jackson, for me- reminding us that community radio can be a revolutionary force, not only in New York City or Berkeley or Washington, D.C., but around the world. So over these past four years, Donald Trump and his administration have carried out an unprecedented assault on truth and the public's sense of a shared reality. It's been a nonstop fire, high, fire hose of lies and misdirection, and that's no accident. A theory of communications that emerged from postmodernist academia and was weaponized against the Russian people by Vladimir Putin's regime has been embraced by Trump and his favorite strategist, Steve Bannon, as explained in a brilliant article recently published by Miles Kampf Lesson in, in the publication In These Times. The article is called How Our Politics Came Undone. Under Trump, our notion of shared truth has been shattered, In its place, monsters have swarmed. And uh, Miles warns in his article, we could see a lot more of these disorienting strategies in the days to come. Miles, thanks for joining us on the Independent News Hour uh, here on 99.5 FM. Thank you for having me. Very glad to be here. Great. So, uh, first of all, 
Uh, can you uh, run us back through the history of, uh, or if you want to dis- describe a little bit more of this uh, communication strategy and how it emerged and, and has evolved over the last uh, 20 years or so and is now being directed at the American people? Sure. So our, you know, your audience is probably most familiar with uh, kind of what happened four years ago with the Trump 2016 campaign um, and particularly the role of uh, propagandist uh, merchant Stephen K. Bannon. As you mentioned, he was a you know, chief strategist for the Trump White House. Um, and his philosophy was essentially to inundate uh, the media with false and misleading claims, not just to achieve certain political ends, but also to create this kind of cloud of confusion that both polarizes and then also disorients potential voters, causing them to either cling to kind of the constructive, constructed narrative of Trump as a singular figure, rooting out the darkness in our politics, or more likely really causes the public to disengage from the political sphere entirely, just seeing it all as corrupted beyond repair. Now, as you mentioned, that Stephen Bannon didn't introduce that concept, and it had been developed over many years. One of the individuals that I'd write about in my piece is a, a character named Vladislav Surkov, who uh, throughout the 2000s in Putin's Russia uh, carried out a very similar strategy on the Russian people, and he was very open about it. You know, he talked about this as his goal was to create this culture of confusion um, and chaos, and uh, was really uh, what I talk about in pieces that it was derived from this idea of kettle logic, as laid out by Jacques Derrida, a French theorist, which essentially is to attack the idea of objective truth by just throwing out many different explanations that lead people to confusion and ultimately acquiescence. It's really a form of anti-politics. And I think that's what we saw in 2016 with the Trump campaign. And unfortunately, I think that's what we're continuing to see with uh, Trump in 2020. Right. I guess just as one of many examples, we could look at, I mean, the way, uh, you know, uh, Trump has handled the coronavirus and and the controversy, uh, the the trumped up controversy around uh, wearing masks and I mean, he's derided it, he's mocked it, and then he'll flip on the dime and be like, of course, you know, it's okay to wear a mask. I don't have any problem with that. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, you know, understandably, people will say, hey, disinformation has been part of our politics for a very long time. We remember the George W. Bush era when there was lies in the media. Um, That's all true, but I think that there was a pretty qualitative difference in that Those had uh, an intended effect, which was to drum up support behind a war effort, for example, whereas there was a much more diffuse and I would say even sinister motivation behind uh, this strategy, which is rather to just polarize people for one so that, you know, you create this whole world where, um, you know, if you if you watch Fox News or you uh, are on certain news feeds, your entire what you're going to see is stories about COVID-19 being created in a Wuhan lab. Uh, in China for use as a bioweapon or fears that it's actually Democrats who plan to steal the election through a sea of what they were calling uh, harvested ballots, um, or whether it's, uh, you know, the laptop from hell of Hunter Biden. This is all part of a, a way not to just get people to line up behind Trump, but rather to reject the idea of politics altogether as something that is uh, deeply wicked and beyond our control. And I, I think that that's going to be the real lasting legacy of the Trump campaign. Um, what I'm hopeful for, you know, is that we're going to see a more of a democratic revival in response to that. But the past four years, I think, have been 
overwhelmed by these contradictory uh, messages that we've seen throughout the media. And it's unfortunate that uh, it, much of our media has not been able to adapt quickly enough to deal with this new um, reality we're working in. But it's helpful that there's, you know, outlets like yours and others that will um, push back against the dominant narrative and try to provide, you know, some substance of truth to the uh, voting public because uh, we need it now more than ever. Right. And what is the role that uh, social media plays in this? I mean, beyond the kind of strategy of people like Bannon, where where does, um, you know, Facebook and Twitter, uh, you know, factor into this in, in the way it can uh, silo people? Yeah, I think that that's a, a real uh, element that distances our current moment from previous ones is just the factor of social media and the fact that there's these are private companies that have profit motives at their heart so they benefit from and in fact facebook uh, openly acknowledged that their strategy uh this year was to create more and more groups because they want to have people segregated into these little pods across uh their network rather than having them all following certain you know, big media organizations or what have you, they're trying to kind of decentralize it. Well, what that's created is this world that they're now supposedly fighting against, uh, where you have just these very dark, uh, sinister uh, elements of our society that are building uh, following uh, by, you know, trading in conspiracies like the QAnon cult that is uh, very dominant now across social media. And so, you know, they're trying to respond to that. But in fact, they created the conditions under which uh, these type of communities could uh, spread very rapidly. And so I think that social media is unfortunately very behind the times in terms of both moderation. I mean, they all say they outsource all of their moderation. None of these companies take responsibility for it. And ultimately, they're trying to make money off of this. And they realize that, hey, you know, conspiracy theories can make a lot of money for uh, people like Mark Zuckerberg. Um, so I don't think that they have necessarily our democracy's uh, best hopes uh, in, in their intentions here. I think they have their bottom line. Right. And speaking of our democracy, I mean, we had a, a clip uh, during our headlines uh, from Jason Miller, a senior advisor to Trump, uh, you know, previewing uh, their strategy for uh, prematurely declaring victory uh, tonight. I mean, there is a slim chance that Trump could actually win this thing on his own uh, through an, another uh, squeaker victory in the Electoral College. But uh, generally, he's uh, behind in the polls and uh, uh, you know, definitely the underdog. But they're uh, planning to announce victory anyway. A- and then uh, how, how will this uh, you know communication uh, strategy of theirs uh, unfold from there? Well, I think it's all uh, part of the same strategy. This is exactly what uh, Steve Bannon laid out. In an October 10th forum, so just a couple weeks ago, he told a group that this is what we should expect at 10 o'clock p.m. Donald Trump's locked into the White House. He's paraphrased quote from from Bannon, and he's going to uh, say games over and declare himself the winner if he's in a few of these swing states based on strictly the uh, the data coming based on voting today, not any of the mail-in ballots. And that's what they're, uh, I think, very. Uh, transparent about what they're they're plotting to do. Now, it's all linked to their politics. I don't think they'd be carrying out this strategy just for the hell of it. They realize, I mean, Bannon, for example, was an architect of the Muslim travel ban, of leaving the Paris Climate Accords, of building this massive wall on the southern border. So their political objectives, far right wing political objectives, 
conservative ones at the heart of this strategy. Uh, but the only way that they're going to be able to do it, much like Stephen Miller, who is advising Donald Trump on immigration, he has a whole uh, suite of very racist, anti-immigrant policies he's waiting to carry out upon Trump's re-election. So a lot of it hinges on that. I think you're right to say it's very unlikely that Trump will legitimately uh, win this election. We'll see in a few hours. Uh, but uh, regardless, they're going to use every tool in their toolbox to try to create and use this false constructive narrative that they've built up over years. You remember right after the 2016 result came in, Trump said uh, that he actually won the popular vote. But in fact, there were millions of uh, fraudulent votes that led to Hillary Clinton supposedly winning it. This stuff, you know, has an impact. And I think a lot of Trump supporters really buy into that and the idea that the election is going to try to be rigged and stolen. Um, and Trump is doing everything he can to pour gasoline on that fire. So um, it's going to be a real test, I think, of our democracy and even of our media to um, to allay some of those uh, claims that are going to be made by the far right and uh, Trump's White House itself and wait until we have a real result of this election. Right. And, and when you mentioned that the comments from Trump after he won the 2016 election about how, you know, millions of, uh, you know, so-called illegal uh, immigrants had voted and had cost him the popular vote victory. You know, at the time, uh, almost everybody, uh, you know, thought like, oh, wow, that's just, you know, isn't he uh, being crazy again, uh, you know, spouting off about, you know, winning millions of votes that uh, are losing millions of votes that didn't exist. And, uh, you know, you can't help but look back at, at this stage and, and uh, you know, think that, that there was something a little more premeditated going on there in terms of him, uh, even at that early stage, uh, basically grooming uh, his uh, uh, followers, uh, you know, to believe, uh, you know, sort of this whole package of uh, of misinformation uh, that will, you know, help, uh, you know, help him with what he might try to do uh, later tonight. Exactly. And I think that that's um, it, it just goes to show that this is part and parcel of a larger um, goal, which is to the Republican and the, uh, the Republican Party realizes that they are a minoritarian party. They can't win based on elections alone. So they have to use all these different other apolitical tools in order to uh, create the conditions under which they can at least claim victory. And part of that is suppressing the vote, certainly as we've seen with, you know, voter intimidation efforts, uh, efforts to get the polls, uh, the ballots thrown out by uh, uh, judges and various courts. Um, but part of it is also this, um, for lack of a better word, this disinformation strategy, which is just to, as Steve Bannon laid it out, I mean, he said he declared in 2018, the Democrats don't matter. The real opposition is the media. And the way to deal with them is to flood the zone with uh, a word I will not say on air, but rhymes with pit. Thank and, you. Uh, uh, we call it manure. Yeah. Sure. Uh, and so, that, I mean, that's exactly what we've seen time and time again with this White House. Steve Bannon is no longer, you know, in the administration. He's right now dealing with a pretty serious uh, legal uh, issue because of defrauding uh, donors to a We Build the Wall fund that faces he's facing a lengthy pr prison charge because of it. Um, but that doesn't mean that his influence is not still being felt in the White House. And they never pivoted from the strategy of flooding the zone, you know, with uh, with constant uh, salacious uh, stories, which is what you see if you turn on Fox News now. At least in 2016, a lot of the stories that the right was running with had some kernel of truth to them, or at least they were being reported in the mainstream media. Now, if you watch 
Fox News or many of these right wing stations, it's they're presenting an entirely different um, uh, world and reality than what most of us are living through, certainly when it comes to things like the pandemic. I mean, they don't even acknowledge at this point that the pandemic is still uh, raging and upending so many people's lives. So I think that right. th- this is not uh, th- this is not something new. Unfortunately, we've seen it just accelerate. And I'm hopeful that this election will uh, help to uh, show the limits of that strategy politically. I think four years ago, they showed the currency of it, you know, of, of how effective it could be. But if we uh, have a different result this time around, I think that will hopefully uh, put, put, put an end, at least in the short term, to uh, some of these really nefarious practices by uh, some of the you know, people who stand to benefit and profit right, right. from a confused population um, and instead actually put, put some democracy back into uh, our country. Uh, all right. Well, Miles My, Kampf, listen, uh, thank you so much for joining us on WBAI uh, this evening to really lay that out. Uh, that was really helpful. Of course. Pleasure to be here. Thanks so much. You bet. Alrighty, so we don't know how the election turns will, returns will go tonight, but if Trump uh, tries to hijack the election before all the votes have been counted, uh, you know we uh, it will be important to be ready uh, for the next step, and and people will have to step it up quickly if this uh, train does uh, jump the tracks. When we come back after this short break, we will talk with our next guest about it, what it would take to get a mass movement up and rolling. Uh, should uh, an electoral coup uh, emerge later tonight.
That was Expect the Bayonet by Sheer Mag. You're listening to the inaugural edition of the Independent News Hour. I'm your host, John Tarleton, editor-in-chief of the Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. Before we continue with our next segment, I want to encourage everyone who can do so to give generously to WBAI and help keep shows like this on the air. You can do so by calling 516-620-3602 or going straight to give the number to wbai.org. Again, the number is 516-620-3602. You can make a one-time donation or better yet, sign up as a WBAI buddy for $10 per month or more, become a sustaining monthly donor and help keep WBAI and shows like this uh, beaming away uh, f- from our 50,000-watt transmitter here in Manhattan. I'll share that information again at the end of the show. Now, as I was saying before the break, we don't know how the election will uh, turn out tonight. Uh, Biden could win a resounding landslide that no Trump uh, propaganda machine can uh, refute. At the same time, uh, 538.com uh, and Nate Silver give Trump a 10% chance of squeaking out another electoral college victory while losing the popular vote by as many as four or five points. But it's also quite possible Trump will try to claim victory he hasn't earned and then try to make it stick with the help of Republican-dominated federal courts and with that uh, uh, propaganda machine that uh, our previous guest uh, uh, described. So if that's our new reality, when we wake up uh, tomorrow morning, our next guest, uh, Eric Stoner, has some ideas about what we should do about that. He is a co-founder and editor of Waging Nonviolence, a website that chronicles the uh, almost uh, infinite variety of nonviolent campaigns and movements active in the world today. Eric, thanks for joining us on the uh, Independent News Hour. John? Yes. Different guest. Okay. All right. I just learned that uh, Eric uh, can't join us at the moment, but we we hope he'll be able to join us uh, before the end of the show. So uh, instead, we're going to be joined uh, by Yasmin uh, Ozir. Uh, She's a a graduate student at the um, City University of New York uh, from Turkey, uh, a country that's uh, had an authoritarian government for a number of years uh, that's actually uh, quite friendly with Donald Trump. And uh, there's also a, a secular opposition there uh, that uh, has run uh, some strong races uh, for uh, mayor of Istanbul and Ankara and, uh, and major cities like that. And and last year there was uh, you know quite a a, a struggle where uh, the opposition uh, appeared to to win the mayor's race in Istanbul, and then it looked like the their victory might be stolen from them. So uh, uh, Yasmin in our current November. Uh, issue of the Independent wrote an article called uh, "From uh, One Fragile Democracy to Another," uh, with some advice for Americans as we uh, head toward this uh, perilous moment in in the history of our country. Uh, Yasmin, thank you for joining us this evening on the WB uh, on the Independent News Hour. Thank you for having me. Right. So, uh, first of all, I, if you want to just uh, add a little bit more to the the story of uh, of what happened in in Turkey last year with those uh, those uh, elections uh, that uh, the opposition uh, won and then appeared to have stolen from them and and then I understand they prevailed in the end. Right. Um, so as you were mentioning, I I wrote this article uh, to share some insights and strategies from elections in Turkey, especially the the one you just mentioned, the recent one. 
of uh, mayoral elections in Istanbul last year because um, sort of the main driving force for me to share this was my personal anxiety about what I perceived to be a deep-seated sense of American exceptionalism on the part of some voters, including my friends and colleagues, that they thought, um, you know, they seemed to have an unshakable, almost naive faith that elections could not be stolen here, that coups could not happen in the U.S., unlike in the rest of the world. So I, I thought about... Um, this this moment that we just went through in Turkey, um, that that it might be helpful. So very briefly, you kind of laid it out already. Uh, what happened in Turkey last year was that on March 31st, Turkish citizens, including myself, we went to the polls to elect mayors and other local officials in our cities. Um, as a resident of Istanbul, I also cast my vote. After voting, the counting process began. And as as it continued into the night with tens of thousands of votes still uncounted, um, the candidate from the governing Justice and Development Party uh, declared himself the winner of the election and, and the mayor of Istanbul. This and sounds familiar. Like, right. <laughs> he was slightly ahead of his main rival from the opposition, Republican People's Party, my, my personal candidate as well. Uh, but there were unopened ballot boxes. Um, and uh, what was even more strange was the state media outlets, um, which we get the numbers, right, as they trickle in, as ballot boxes are open, abruptly stopped broadcasting the vote count. And all of a sudden, there were conflicting statistics and numbers and claims of voter fraud and just uh, a lot of misinformation that led to uh, massive confusion and disorientation. Um and uh, voters rooting for the opposition candidate and members of the parliament themselves rushed to the polls to protect the vote and to ensure that every last vote was counted. Um, the next day, uh, one, and it worked, right? There were, there were these viral photos of members of the parliament um, literally sleeping overnight with ballot bags to protect them from being stolen or, or uh, dumped somewhere. Um, and then uh, once all the votes were counted, we, we saw the next morning that, um, in fact, the opposition candidate had won uh, by, by a slight margin. Uh, but the um, other candidate doubled down. He refused to uh, accept the results. Uh, Istanbul voters... Uh, including me and my family, we had to wait for more than a month uh, while the the principal institution in charge of elections, the Supreme Election Council, uh, deliberated on the issue, if the, the election was valid or not. Um, and uh, to our dismay, they decided that the election had to be canceled, uh, annulled uh, victory by the opposition candidate, Ekrem Imamoglu, and the election had to be repeated. So in two, two months' time, on June 23rd, right, uh, there were new campaigns. You know, people had to get over election fatigue, um, sense of hopelessness, and, and really pull it together, show up again at the polls. And this time, with a huge margin, um, very clearly, Imam Olu, the opposition candidate, was elected as the, the, the mayor of Istanbul. Wow, uh, quite quite an ordeal, and, and just uh, for 
uh, people uh, listening who might not be feel familiar with Turkey, Istanbul is Turkey's uh, largest city, kind of like maybe what New York is to the United States, uh, uh, a cultural and, and um, political hub. And um, and that that's an amazing victory that the opposition managed to to win. You know, I guess in terms of the sort of the riding the wave of emotions around that, you know, what what do you think made it possible? You know, what were people doing and thinking to to stay you know so grounded and not just throw up their hands and walk away from the situation? Right. Um, that's where I think this case becomes most relevant to the U.S. Um, historic election right now. Um, obviously, um, when we look back, protecting the vote is clearly essential, right? Insisting that every vote gets counted, not accepting a premature declaration of victory, um, and, you know, just uh, using street protests, nonviolent civil disobedience, labor strikes. Um, but you know, I think just really letting it sink in for the American voters that elections can take days and months, especially if recounts need to happen. Um, in such moments of prolonged uh, political uncertainty, widespread confusion and collective anxiety just sets in. So, um, you know, hopelessness, collective despair, uh, a heavy sense of defeat can arise. And that's precisely, I think, uh, what can ensure the success of an undemocratic takeover. And some of the strategies um, that I, I have seen in the Turkish case and other, other places in the global south that have fought against many uh, authoritarian sort of takeovers is to manage collective emotions, to keep the morale high through phases of uncertainty, um, starting with your own community, your own family members, uh, sort of helping them remain hopeful. Remember that elections are emotional affairs. You can't take anything for granted. Um, uncertainty is difficult to navigate, but not being demoralized, keeping positive and resilient um, is so, so important. And I can't um, emphasize enough that at these uncertain times, dissemination of misinformation is a real danger. So um, check your sources. And verify information before sharing news with your communities. Fake numbers, right. false statistics, and false claims do not only misinform but can can de- demoralize communities and and make them give up. So right. these very we, sort of basic things um, must be kept in mind. Right. Yeah. Ab- ab- absolutely. I mean, the last thing uh, uh, people want to become is sort of a. a you know, a, a spreader of, of not only misinformation, but of, of uh, um, demoralizing, uh, you know, uh, false information. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, Yas, uh, Yasmin Ozir, thank you so much for joining us uh, this evening on the Independent News Hour and, and for your excellent article in the new issue of The Independent. Thank you so much. Thanks for okay. having me. All right. Bye-bye. All right. We'll be back in a quick minute uh, with... Uh, uh, Eric Stoner from uh, Waging Nonviolence to uh, talk a little bit about how resistance might take shape here in the United States and in New York if that's uh, necessary. you.
That was Hazaranda Omek Zor, or It's Hard to Die in, in June, by Group Yorum, a Turkish、uh, group that plays protest folk music. So now for our next segment, we're going、uh, to be joined by Eric Stoner of Waging Nonviolence,、uh, an excellent website that covers、uh, nonviolent movements here in the United States and around the world.、Uh, Eric, are, are you there? I am, yeah. Thanks for having me, John. You bet. So,、um, in this、uh, current issue of The Independent, we, all,、uh, we reprinted an outstanding article、uh, that was on your website. We rarely run reprints, but we felt this article was so important and so timely, we went ahead and reprinted it. And it's called、uh, 10 Things You Need to Know to Stop a Coup.、Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that article and what you feel are、uh, some of the, the key points、uh, that are in it? Sure, yeah, that article、um, really、uh, caught fire. I think people were,、um, you know, I think it, it really、uh, took off in mid September when, for whatever reason, Trump had that press conference, right, where he、uh, spoke to, you know, not accepting that he, he wasn't going to commit to a peaceful transfer of power and questioned the ballot overall. And、um, I think this,、uh, this story that we had on our website kind of Was one of the few, or only at the time, I think, that had a more of a concrete plan and some real guidelines on kind of what a movement response、um, would need to be, you know, to,、uh, to respond to that moment. And,、um, and so people have really kind of taken this up, and、um, a new kind of group formed、um, kind of in advance of that, but the, the article filtered into this group called Choose Democracy.、Um, Which has been,、uh, has created a pledge of resistance that people can sign to kind of commit to take action if there are any signs of an attempted kind of coup or, or that Trump might try to steal the election. I think that, that is important. You know, I think the more people can,、uh, be unified and prepared in advance of, of, of this, the, the less likely it is maybe to happen,、um, because people might see that it's going to be a, a tough fight. But,、um, Also, there have been trainings that have been happening and are still ongoing、uh, by Choose Democracy and a bunch of other groups、um, to kind of prepare activists to, to take to the streets and to, to do more strategic, kind of creative actions in the coming weeks if we have to.、Um, so, I think some of the interesting points that kind of came out of、uh, their approach is that, you know,、um, There will, there will inevitably be protests one way or the other.、Um, protect、um, the results is a, a coalition、uh, of over 100 grassroots groups that have kind of called for actions tomorrow,、uh, no matter what happens around the country. And、um, so there, are, there is an action here in New York. You can sign up for that.、Um, but I think 
you know, that is just the very start of what could potentially be, you know, uh, you know, at least days, if not weeks of, of resistance that are, are coming here. And I think um, people need to be prepared, um, I think, to take action really quickly. Um, when you study kind of other coups that have happened around the world, um, you know, they're often defeated. Um, when they are defeated, they're often defeated within days or, or weeks of the attempt. And so um, it's, it's, you know, could be the case that it's, it's actually not a, 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 a really drawn out struggle, but something that if we can act decisively, um, you know, quickly, that um, we could be able to, to stop this. So I think, you know, that's important. Um, you know, also, I think the idea, a concern that a lot of people have is around the question of violence, right? And the fact that Trump could uh, potentially call out his kind of armed base, right, to defend him. And, you know, he's obviously said things pretty clearly to that effect, you know, in recent months. And so um, I think activists, we also need to be thinking about how to prepare for that kind of a scenario. And um, one thing to consider, you know, I think is you know, maybe rather than having um, just mass kind of street protests, which can create easy targets for armed groups that want to um, respond, you know, kind of with violence, you know, the kind of um, armed right-wing extremists that Trump has in his camp, um, you know, maybe better to target actions very kind of strategically, surgically at kind of uh, election officials that are responsible for, um, you know, counting every vote to ensure that they do, or elected officials that might be uh, on the fence or even coming out to side with Trump, and to try to, like, um, really be targeted in the actions that we organize in the coming weeks. Sure. Now, I guess the, the other side of that argument would be that we're, we would need a certain amount of mass mobilization to really, you know, show the the breadth of support for, for counting all the votes and defending democracy. This doesn't seem like something that sort of a, a specialized uh, group of activists uh, could pull off alone. Oh, no, I think you're right. I think I think um, you're going to have kind of uh, both of those things happening, right? There will inevitably be kind of large protests, but I think it'll also be important to think of the more kind of targeted um, actions that will be really directed at the officials and people responsible for ensuring a, a fair election, right, and that every vote is counted. And we want to kind of think about who are the specific people with the power to make those kinds of decisions and to, to kind of keep the pressure on them. And then I think everyone that studies, um, you know, coup scenarios like your, like your previous guest um, just mentioned, you know, I think strikes um, are, are also very important. You know, when you look at uh, examples from around the world, often um, one of the decisive factors is when people mobilize um, through, through strikes, whether it be a general strike, which would be a real challenge to organize, but um, and would be would be a first for this country. Yeah, it would be. It really hasn't happened a true general strike, but I think we could, uh, you know, also have kind of what people are calling rolling strikes, right, where you have different sectors that shut down for different 
periods of time and kind of have it be a bit more, you know, kind of uh, targeted also in that way. And kind of, uh, I think that is a more likely scenario that would unfold. And, you know, people, I think uh, some unions are starting to already speak out about this and call for this and prepare for it. So I think um, the groundwork is being laid to kind of escalate in, in that direction, which I think will be really important. And, um, you know, the right. more we, we can... We have about 20 seconds here. Is there any, any, any last uh, thoughts you want to share? Um, I think the importance of, of trying to stay, you know, nonviolent despite the provocation um, that we're very likely to face, because uh, by doing that, we're going to kind of encourage the most number of people to participate and the greatest diversity of people, because we really need everybody to be involved. Uh, the more people are involved, the more points of contact we have with people on the other side that we can pull in our direction. And everyone's going to have to be uh, involved in this if we're going to win. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I would just uh, underscore that. Uh, we would need a mass nonviolent action, and the nonviolence isn't about being virtuous or get, you know, getting a pat on the head from uh, some uh, liberal, but it's really about building the biggest possible movement because right now – you know, the struggle isn't to uh, fight it out with the cops in the streets. It's, it, it will have to be about building that mass movement. And Eric Stoner from uh, WagingNonviolence.org, I thank you so much for coming on the Independent News Hour this evening. Thank you so much for having me, John. All righty. So uh, we're going to have to wrap it up here uh, one more time. Please uh, support WBEI, if you can, by calling 516-620-3602 and making a generous donation, a one-time donation, or signing up as a monthly sustainer as a WBAI buddy for as little as $10 per month. Uh, before I leave, I want to thank our producer, Amber Gagarian, for all her uh, amazing work to help make this show uh, possible. And uh, we will be preempted next week. Uh, Pacifica will uh, have a one-day uh uh, fund appeal going on, but we will be back uh, two weeks from today on uh, Tuesday, November 17th uh, at the same time. Thank you, and uh, let's uh, see what happens tonight, and uh, we'll take it from there, whatever happens. Bye-bye.